Kresge, that was one of the best Gideon presentations I've ever heard. I love the Bible and I love stories, and so I love it when Gideon guys come because they always tell stories about the Bible. So that's kind of neat. How many of you brought your Bible tonight? Raise it up in the air and leave it up, okay? You brought your Bible, put up, if you brought your iPod or your Blackberry, and it has the Bible on it, and you're going to follow. That's cool. Just put it up in the air right here. Let's see it. Come on. So look at that. Young people got their Bibles. Old people got their Bibles. Everybody in between. That's the way it should always be. Amen? Because we're a Bible-preaching church. So if I don't want to say enough about the Bible, you come and see me. All right? All right? Be nice. You know, buy me coffee. <laughs> but come and see me. Because that's what we're supposed to be. If you're a Sunday school teacher, don't teach with your quarterly. Amen? Teach with your Bible. Use a quarterly or whatever, but teach with your Bible. Let the students see the Bible. And because that's the kind of church we are. 77th anniversary. We want to keep remembering this is a Bible preaching, Christ exalting church. This is one of the things that I came back from the Holy Land with uh, this powerful uh, impression of, oh my goodness, I wish I was younger so I could study the Bible more than I have. I wish I had not read over places in the Bible or people's names in the Bible or details in the Bible. It is such a rich book. I was so excited. Lois doesn't know this yet. I'm going to confess here. I went and bought myself a new Bible yesterday because <laughs> I needed one. I haven't had a new Bible for weeks, so I need to go get one. I just needed a new Bible. It was a great deal, and I had saved the money, and, and I'm excited about the Bible, so I bought a, a new Bible. And So, I mean, you know, if you're going to have a habit, you know, buy a Bible. That's not bad, right? So anyway, we ought to really be excited about the Bible. So if you're here tonight, and I was just like, I was looking at the young people, and I was wondering, I wonder if the young people brought their Bibles tonight, and the young people have their Bibles. So let's open those Bibles up to the book of Job, because we get to talk about Job. What a book of the Bible. How many of you have read the book of Job recently? Raise your hand. All right. Where to go? What a book, huh? Is it like amazing or what? It's an amazing book. It's just full of amazing things. And, uh, and it's really a very, very uh, fascinating book, as you know. If you haven't read the book of Job, we're going to kind of give you an overview tonight, kind of a flyover of the book of Job. And uh, so take your book, Bible, open to Job, of course, chapter 1. And this is a very, very special message. I doubt if you will, you may never hear a message that was written. How come it sounds louder when I come up here? Is it just like, my, hold on, let me just check and see if I have my ducks in a row. I'm on, it just must be, it's louder when I'm standing here in the right place. Do you like it when I talk to myself like this? Sorry about that. Anyway, this is probably the most unusual message you will ever hear because I'm kind of a local, provincial kind of a guy. I go to Flint sometimes. I go to the hospital. Every once in a while I get out of state. But this message, people, I wrote a lot of this message flying over countries. Isn't that cool? Co- entire countries. I was kind of neat because on a plane, they had this little map, and it was showing you, like, you're, gro- you're going over the Mediterranean. You're going over Greece and Italy and France and Spain. I thought it was pretty cool. So this is a special message. You want to listen very carefully because it's, it's, it was written flying over countries. That's kind of a big deal. I have a picture here with me tonight. We're talking about Job, the comfort of knowing God. A picture of somebody I want you to meet. I want you to meet Henry Van Dyke. He's been dead for a long time. But uh, I've always admired his mustache, so I wanted you to see his picture. He's an unusual guy. He's a Presbyterian pastor, and he was a writer, and he was a fly fisherman, and he was a naturalist, and he was a foreign ambassador. He wrote a book called Out of Doors in the Holy Land. He wrote a ton of other books. He's the guy, maybe you remember me telling you this story before, that I didn't know he'd written so much, and I one time stumbled into, well, I didn't stumble, I actually 
walked into a used bookstore. I have told Lois about this one. And I found the complete works of Henry Van Dyke, which I didn't even know existed. So, of course, I had to buy them. And, uh, but what, a brilliant, what, a, what an interesting writer. Um, he had a lot of really good things in his life. He made kind of a mistake, I think, a doctrinal error. It's, in my opinion, I'll talk to you about that another time. It wasn't like a, a, you know, an outward scandal or anything like that. But a very interesting guy. He wrote hymns, a couple of hymns that you've sung before, and, uh, and a very lucid writer. Again, I, he wrote this book, Out of Doors in the Holy Land. He went to the Holy Land like a hundred years ago, and he wrote these fascinating descriptions of the flora and the fauna and the wildlife and the rocks. And the Holy Land is a really beautiful place, an amazing place. And, you know, you know, you probably like sometimes if you haven't gone, you get the impression, I know, it's a pile of rocks here and some pile of rocks there and it's desert and it's dry. And it's not really the impression. It's not the land that Jesus lived in. It's an amazing, beautiful, mountainous, fascinating, variegated land. And Henry Van Dyke went there. But when he went there, you rode horses and camels and you camped out in tents. And uh, he had some fascinating things to say. Well, I love a book that talks about the Lord Jesus and that has some art to it. And I love a book that has descriptions of nature. Tonight, when you study, or as you read the book of Job, and tonight as we fly over the book of Job, Job is probably, of the books of the Bible, it may be, have the most nature descriptions of any book in the Bible. And the one who speaks the nature descriptions does it in a poetic way by asking questions. It is a, a theophany. It's the Lord Himself who's asking the questions. It's a very special, very special book. Who's the author of the book of Job? We're not sure. The identity of the author of, of Job is unknown. Though some have conjectured Moses may have been the author, but a careful reading of the book reveals some interesting things that we can know about the author just by the internal evidence in the book. By reading the book, you can see things about the author. For instance, he's an Israelite who's very familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. Again, you know that from the internal evidence from reading the book. He knew the constellations and named the constellations. He knew about heavenly bodies. You can see this in chapter 9 and verse 9. And of course, chapter 38, where God is speaking. He could discuss meteorology with some finesse, with some detail. Chapter 38, verses 22 through 38, you'll see that. Talk about weather patterns and so forth. He was familiar with a sophisticated mining operation. It's in there. You read the book? It's in there. He uses that as an extended metaphor. as a kind of a large illustration. He talks about this, whole, but he gives a lot of specific detail. As if he's very familiar with it, he has to, the person who writes like this must have been very familiar with this mining operation. He was a keen observer, as I've mentioned, of plants, of animals, of nature, chapter 9, verse 26, chapter 8, verses 11 through 19, and of course, again, uh, God's speech that he gives from chapters 38 through 41, which is kind of the really fun part of the book, especially if you don't count the stories that bracket the stuff on the ends. He's commonly used uh, nature observations, metaphors. It's just fascinating stuff. That's, so who's the author? We're not sure, but we do know something about the author. Who's the audience? The, the book seems to have been written for, for us. The audience is... Some books of the Bible... It's very clear who the audience is because a lot of specific detail is given in terms of names and geography and history, times and places. It's almost as if God, God wrote the book of Job in such a way that it would be easily applicable to all people over all time. Anybody who goes through suffering that he doesn't understand, a, a woman that goes through suffering that she doesn't understand. And so the book is written for a wide audience appeal with few specific historic details and references to places. So it's a general enough to appeal to a wide audience over place and time. 
uh, hesitate to bring this up, but I'll just shoot it out here because you're big people. And I can tell you this. I heard once a person kind of attack Job saying, well, Job wasn't a real person. But, but Job is, uh, is an extended parable. And I have to admit, that's an appealing idea for a lot of reasons. When you, when you look at the book, you see that it's, it has such intricacy in terms of its poetry and its argument that you, it's almost like the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel has so much specific detail about the future, you think, I know what happened. You know, what happened is the guy looked back after these events happened, and he described them in a poetic way. But there are reasons that we know that's not what happened, but that Daniel includes predictive prophecy. Same thing how you're thinking here with Job. Job, I believe, is a real person. And Job is a real story. And a couple reasons that I believe that are, he's quoted, in other words, Daniel and Noah and Job are named in Ezekiel, and we know that Daniel and Noah were real people, and so that obviously he's a real person. Uh, the book of James mentions Job without any kind of caveat. You know the parable of Job. It doesn't say it that way. I believe this really happened. This is a real story about a real person in a real place. And the reason that it's arranged this way is because we have such a brilliant God whose word is such a, has such simplicity and yet such amazing detail and such beautiful literary form that that's the way he operates. Now the theme of the book of Job is comfort. Theme, comfort, of, comfort is the theme of the book, and there are examples in the book of interesting examples of genuine comfort, which comes in a kind of a surprising way, and also comfort like the way you really shouldn't do it. That's why we always say Job's comforters, who were really no comfort to him at all. Maybe you have friends like that, and you know what I'm talking about. A thoughtful reading of the book can teach us much about comfort and how to be comforted in suffering. And how to comfort other people when they're suffering, there is a singular nugget of truth, if you will, that really is the synchronon. It really is the, ma- the, the major truth that's a great um, bedrock of comfort to people who are suffering. And we'll get to that tonight as we look at this book. The purpose of the book is to generate an, uh, faith and trust and confidence in an all-powerful God, a sovereign God. Purpose of the book, reasons for human suffering are often unknown to those of us who are suffering. And as Job here, we know why Job is suffering. We know, I haven't read the story yet, but in the story what's going to happen is Job is going to suffer real bad. He's going to suffer real, real bad, to use poor grammar in order to capture your attention. He's going to suffer real bad. And in this time, we know why he's suffering, because it says so in the book. But he doesn't know why he's suffering. And there's a lot of conversation that's going on and things that are happening but the book doesn't ever say that anybody tells Job why he's suffering. So it might be that way with you too. You may go through things. You may think, what's going on here? And God will have you in the very palm of his hand, specifically ordering your steps, doing something very meaningful, and he may choose not to let you know what that is. Sometimes he works that way. We know this from this story because it's specifically what he did. So it is a very interesting book. We should train ourselves, as Job did, to get our comfort and our distress from what we do understand about God. And that's kind of a hint about the nugget of truth that I was talking about. We, we don't ha- God doesn't reveal to Job what's going on. But God revealed himself to Job. Job says, kind of like, I, I, you know, of course his friends are saying, you're guilty, that's why these bad things are happening to you. And he's like, no, I don't think so. I'm not guilty. That's, that's not true. Why is this going on? And God says, I need you to know something about how powerful I am. So 
like, well, that isn't the question that I ask. God's like, that's the answer I gave. And that, this should help us to understand. Here's a simplistic way to express this truth. When I was a little boy, we had a course I loved. Some mom and dad would always say, what's your favorite course? You know, our church is really small. And so I was, I was involved a lot because, well, you know, you don't have anybody in the church. Everybody has to do something. My dad did this, this thing called Usher School. And that was a great idea. Um, the kids would come like at 6 o'clock, like the services at 7 o'clock, the kids would come at 6 o'clock, and boys and girls, and they would go through usher school. My dad had sent me the curriculum for this a few uh, years ago, um, and he still has in his files and everything, and they would teach you how to shake hands, and they'd teach you, you know, like when you come forward and you take the offering, and somebody asks you to pray how to turn, and to turn facing out, just all kinds of details. My dad was really good at that. Um, frequently, in our church service on a Sunday night, they would say, all right, if you give a word of testimony, you can pick a favorite song. And so I would, you know, I'm kind of verbal. You may have noticed. And, and I would always like, you know, raise my hand. And I'd say, hey, I got a favorite. And my favorite song was, I think, by John W. Peterson. And I'm sure we'll sing this one in heaven. And, and here's, the, here's the little course. Some of you that are like really ancient, speak of ancient words, you know, ancient people will remember, I know who holds, you want me to sing it to you? No? Careful, my feelings are very tender here. It goes like this. I know who holds the future, and I know he holds my hand. Anybody remember this? Yeah? You don't want to date yourself now. Sue, really? <laughs> With God, things don't just happen. Everything by Him is planned. So as I face tomorrow, with its problems great and small, I'll trust the God of miracles. Give to Him my all. What's it saying? I don't know the future, but I know the one who knows the future. That's what this book is about right here. I'm not sure why this has happened to me, God, but I'm trusting you. I know you. I trust you. I love you. I don't get what you're doing, but I... I love you. I know you. I understand you. This is a beautiful thing. Let me give you two overviews of the book of Job. Kind of give you the idea of the structure, if you will. Uh, two overviews because maybe one of them will kind of stick in your mind. And I don't know why I do that. I just think it's a teaching method that's helpful. You have the opening of the story. And, and we're going to just read the story because the story of Job, you know, what happens to him and how it ends up, are the brackets of the book. They're chapters 1 and 2, and then he has this response, this despairing lament in chapter 3. But chapters 1 and 2 kind of tell the story about what happens to him and how he commences to suffer. And then at the very end, chapter 42, chapters 42, verses 7 through 11, it's like the end of the story when his fortunes, if you will, are restored to him or God's blessing comes upon him. And he has sons and daughters. Interestingly, the daughters are named and the sons are not. Go figure. But um, here, here's, the, here's the story. You have the story. I'll just show you this outline. I'll kind of give you a, a framework here. The opening of the story. You have Job's opening lament. is chapters, all of chapter 3. You have Job's exchange with his friends, the guys with the funny names we're going to talk about later. And you remember there are three of them, and there's like this give and take between them. They're basically saying, it looks all complex, but basically their, their theology is kind of thin. They're basically saying kind of one thing. I'm sure you're suffering because you've done something bad. That's basically all they're saying. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a one-point sermon, and all three of them gang up on him to preach, and he keeps responding. So they say he responds to three of these times with that, with, so it's exchanged with his friends. As you can see, it's a big hunk of the book, right? Chapter 4 through chapter 25. That's what you have, and it's all that material. J, Job's closing monologue, if you will, in chapter uh, 26 uh, through uh, chapter 31 uh, Elihu comes on. He's a young guy, and uh, he, he's angry because 
the other guys he doesn't feel like have really done a thorough job with Job. So he comes in with a cleaning up operation, and he and what's kind of humorous in a way is nobody even answers him. It's like he says his piece, and then it's like, okay, yeah, whatever, and then God speaks. Just interesting. Elihu. Um, the Lord then appears to Job. This is kind of a big deal, right? A theophany, an appearance of God, pre-incarnate appearance of God here, and the conclusion of the story. Now, now here's what we want to see. The opening story and the conclusion of the story. Let's just take our Bibles tonight and read it. There's probably no better way to see this. I could gather all the children and I could give little treats, but I don't think we're going to do that tonight. Okay, Job chapter 1 and verse 1. There's a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. That's a lot of animals. That's a lot of animals. These rich guys. So that his man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons would go out and feast in their houses each on his appointed day and would send out and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord. He said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Which is it's almost humorous. It's like, It's okay, Lord. I don't need any recognition. I'll just serve you faithfully. Please don't point me out to the devil. This is what the Lord does. Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? And you have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. It's quite a story, isn't it? What happens? Now there's a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came, said the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away, yes, killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, 
fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came. By the way, Job passed the test and did not curse God, right? So Satan comes back. They... When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. That remind you of anything? Like a roaring lion roaming around seeing who he may devour, right? The Lord said to Satan, If you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, blameless, upright man who fears God and shuns evil, And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. Get that? No cause. Everybody who suffers isn't suffering as chastisement for sin. Though some may, not everyone. So Satan answered and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spares life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took for himself a potsherd with with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place. Eliphaz from the, the, the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and comfort him. When they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. And they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his grief was very great. Quite a story, huh? There you have in chapter 3 then, Job, after this long quietness and suffering, Job burst into this lament. Whole chapter 3. As you can see there, then there's this exchange that happens from chapter 4 to chapter 25, back and forth. And then... Job speaks, Elihu comes, he has a long speech, then God speaks, and then we come to the end of the story. Take our Bibles and turn to the end, chapter 42, and verse 7, and you're going to see after all of Job's comforters have spoken, the three of them, and then the, four, the young guy comes along, Elihu, and then Job responds to these things, basically protesting his innocence. So they're basically saying, Job, you were guilty, that's why this is happening. He's basically saying... I don't think so. I, I, I wasn't guilty. This is, I don't think this is God's chastisement, you know, because of my sin. God speaks. Um, Job has had a lot of questions. Job has made a lot of statements. After a while, God says, hey, how about you be quiet and I talk. You listen. And Job listens to this. After God gets done speaking in chapter 42, verse 1, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel with knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I didn't know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. 
I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now my eye sees you, therefore I abhor myself and I repent in, in dust and ashes. So after this, after this, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Yeah, from the lips of God, they were wrong. Job was right. Now therefore, take yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job and offer up yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Be careful when you speak for God, right? And Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. And the Lord restored Job's losses, and he prayed for his friends, when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Interesting there. It's like Satan, Lord let Satan do it, but the Bible says the Lord did it. It's the same. It's throughout Scripture. It's something to think about, isn't it? All his brothers, let's see, I'm in the middle of verse 11 there when I stopped reading. Consoled him, comforted him for all the adversity the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. In modern standards, that would be a lot, right? He also had seven sons and three daughters. He called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Karen Hapak. In all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of, of days. Now, in a flyover, you have to fly over a lot of stuff that you could talk about. You kind of got to get the basic general idea here. That's what we want to do. As we've done this, Job is restored to even a better condition than his former wealthy self. And he has these three daughters. Jemima means dove, Kezia, cinnamon. And I like this one. And gals, you might want to make a note. According to my sources, Karen Hapik means horn of eye makeup. John, do you think that's right? You're the Hebrew guy. Go to work on that for me and let me know. Horn of eye makeup. According to my sources, check it out for me, okay? You know, if you get an answer, raise your hand. Anyway, we got an expert in Hebrew here tonight, so, you know, I'm kind of like measuring my words very carefully. Horn of eye makeup, which if you want to, you can take to the bank, ladies. Bible says it's okay if you use eye makeup. So now you've heard it here. Some of you, we'd really appreciate it if you would. His daughter said, the Bible says that, he, I'm just kidding. His Bible says, yeah, that you, got, you got duty tips for me too. I know, I know. The Bible says that his daughters were beautiful. It's kind of interesting. This is, a, this is probably nothing I should spend time on in an overview. But, you know, I have no self-discipline. So here I go. Uh, the, the Bible often talks about the inner character of a person. No doubt that's the biggest deal, the inner character of a person. But you will notice that frequently when there's beauty, the Bible says there's beauty. It's just kind of interesting. And in this case, that's true. It's kind of like evidence of God's, you know, overall blessing. I want to give you another overview, just kind of give you another way of looking at the same book, of course. Here's another overview of the structure of Job. 
Job is tested by Satan, 1 and 2. Job will chapter 3. Job is counseled by his friends or comforted by his friends, 4 to 31. Job is counseled by Elihu. He's basically tongue-lashed by Elihu. And Job is questioned by God. And this is pretty interesting where God just fires questions at him that are just like, you know, he can't even get a breath. God's boom, 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 boom. Where were you when I made the earth? Do you have any idea how donkeys have babies? Um, you know, just on and on. It's in there. You can read that. It's, in, it's all kinds of things. Like, I take care of this. I make the sun come up in the morning. I make the sun come up. How about you? Where were you when I made the sun come up every morning? It goes on and on. Do you, have you been to the, visited the treasures of the snow? It's amazing things that he, that, that he says. And then Job is vindicated by God. As you've seen, we've read that. There you have it again. Now, let me get some applications, some ideas, just some thought-provoking things before we... I go home tonight. This shouldn't take more than two or three hours. Number one, reverently pour your heart out to God when you're hurting. When you're hurting, reverently pour your heart out to God. Now, in other words, it's okay to lament. I think we see many examples of this in the Psalms and other places in the Bible. It's not necessarily irreverent. I'm not even sure. I don't know. I'd, I'd want to study it more. But I, I was thinking this week as I was praying about this and thinking about it. Job's wife, you know, we're kind of hard on her. I, I, Maybe I'm off on this. You know, I, I just wonder, you know, Job's response seems almost gentle. Don't be careful, honey. Don't speak like the foolish woman. He's not saying you are a foolish woman there. He says, please don't speak like the foolish woman. I, you know, maybe I'm misreading kind of like modern stuff back into the text, but I wonder if it's not like this. His wife is just totally overcome with this amazing grief. And she says, it just seems like we ought to curse God and die. He's like, no, don't say that. And Job didn't sin with his lips. You ever know anybody that got kind of like just like the motion comes up. I don't think God's judgment falls on people who just kind of grieve with their emotions. They say, God, it just seems like you're not listening to me and my life is falling apart and, and you don't love me anymore. I don't think that God's going But when you cross the line into irreverence, kind of skepticism, and you are telling God things and demanding answers from God, you cross the line there. It's the difference between... God, I don't understand this. Please help me. And, you know, I, it always disturbs me when I hear people say with no apparent, you know, remorse, you know, I was angry with God. You were angry with God and you want to talk about it? Are you serious? I, you might want to think through who God is before you start just like casually telling him you're angry at him. Um, here, here, here's some observations. Reverently pour your heart to God. Express your heart to God. But don't cross the line of arrogance or ignorance. In your suffering or in your ignorance, we may think, I have a few questions for you, God. As if He owes us a defense for His actions or He must explain Himself to us. God is saying, do you know how, who I am and how powerful I am? I don't have to explain myself. I'll reveal myself, but I don't have to explain myself. He's God. When He shows up in a whirlwind, we're silent and His questions will silence our questions. A second thing, Learn the skill of genuine comfort. Job's friends had the right idea at first. They came and they were just silent with him. Wow, this is amazing pain that he's going through. They had the right idea. I think initially they tore their clothes. They grieved. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And keep your little pat answers to yourself for a while, right? Be careful when you start saying, oh, I think I know what God... Careful. You haven't been through what they've been through. This may happen in your life or to somebody that you love. Be very humble and be very careful. Don't be like Job's friends that are comforters. When you suffer, don't speak out against God. I think I've already covered that, really. And then, when your friends suffer, don't speak for God. I'm not saying that you don't want to try to 
sometime in an appropriate way guide people into the truth of God. But you know when people are grieving and when they've gone through a lot of really difficulty, one of the best things that you can do sometimes is just be with them and be really quiet. I, I wonder how many of you tonight, like you're going through something hard right now. And it's hard to make sense of it. It just isn't an easy, you know, we have, a lot of times people like to give little quickie pat answers, like life handles itself in like a 30-minute sitcom. You go through tension, trouble, difficulty, resolution, and commercial. But life is, not, life is a lot more complex than that, am I right? I wonder how many of you here tonight are just like, oh, I, I got a burden I carry in my heart all the time. I got something that I wish I could change. I can't. It's, I suffer. It, it grieves me. Hey, you know, people, I think God's showing us this as a church, I think. I think this is a fair, fairly, I don't want to flatter you, I think it's a fairly mature church. I think a lot of you understand, don't be so cocksure and trite and quippy and quick with your answers when people are hurting. Just be with them and be quiet and hurt with them. I'm not saying that there aren't things that we can know and say that are true. But usually the people already know those things. Understand, when friends suffer, don't speak, don't presume to speak for God. Be very careful. And then someone said this. This isn't my original phrase. I've heard it many times. I don't know who to attribute it to. Don't waste your sorrows. When sorrows come to you, God is working in your sorrows. God is doing something. He's, uh, you know, the, the blessed controller of the entire universe. He's sovereign God. In control, in power, he's always doing something. He's infinitely wise and good. And so, when you're going through something, that sorrow is, you know, you see in Job kind of a slow progress as you read through the book. You see a slow kind of growth and progress of understanding. And, and this is the way it usually works with us. God takes these things to, to work in us. Don't waste your sorrows by resisting God. You see examples of this. Look in Job 19. Take your Bibles, will you? And turn to Job 19. This is good stuff. Um, Job 19, and I think you have here some little bursts of evidence that Job is kind of catching on, if you will. At one point, he says this in verse 23 of Job 19, Oh, that my words were written, which is ironic, right? Get it? Oh, that my words, this is written. If you're in the Bible, your words are written, okay? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. And you untangle the mystery of this interesting phrase, for I know that my Redeemer lives and He shall stand at last on the earth after my skin is destroyed. This I know that in my flesh I shall... Where did he get that idea? It's very interesting, isn't it? Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold him, and not another. Now my heart yearns within me. Would that insight, which is incredibly ahead of his time, have ever come to him if God had not taken through this deep suffering? He taught him something. Don't waste your sorrows. Learn. Just say to God, God, I, I, I sense that, that you're trusting me with a deep sorrow, with a great burden. I don't want to. I don't want to waste this. I, I want to. I want to become like you. I want to grow like you. I want to understand you better. I believe Job is showing that. Chapter 23, you see another example of this. This is one that I've always loved uh, to read. Again, this is poetry. Look, I go forward. This is chapter 23, verse 8. Look, I go forward, but he is not there. 
and backward, but I cannot perceive Him. When He works on the left hand, I cannot behold Him. When He turns to the right hand, I cannot see Him. But He knows the way that I take. And when He has tested me, I will come forth as gold. I'm looking, I can't find Him. But He sees me. Don't you love that? Trust God that when you can't see Him, He can see you. His eyes are always on you. That's a wonderful verse, isn't it? Let me show you that Job is kind of making progress. He's growing. Don't waste your sorrows. Trust that you will know Him with a deeper knowing when you're done. And you'll see Him like you've never seen Him before. Now my eyes see you, He says at the end. I heard about you before, but now my eyes see you. It's like, oh, I get it. When we're suffering, we have a very limited vision of what's happening, what will happen in the future. In Job's case, God withheld from him what was going on. And it was God, well, why didn't God just say to him, hey, you know, I got a little thing going on with Satan here. You know, you were one of my top players. And I'm just showing you know, him your skill. And so, stick with me here. It's going to be good. And Job's like, thank you for telling me that. I understand. <laughs> That's not what happened, right? God just lets him suffer and says, watch him. And then, um, let mysteries foster worship. Let me just say about something about this that is on my heart. And it ought to be in your heart, too. And that is, it is possible to know things. It is possible to know things. There's a theological word for that you probably don't really need to use, and you're not going to probably use it. But there, it is possible to have certainty about things that the Bible states clearly. And it is very unpopular to, to say that you know things these days. And I'm not talking about outside of evangelicalism. I'm talking about within evangelicalism. It is very unpopular. It's almost like you, you brand yourself as ignorant and bigoted if you actually have certainty about things that, that you know, like your grandfather was pretty sure were in the Bible. Now it's really popular to just like have a lot of questions and, and no answers. Whole books are now being written that are just kind of like, they're, they're, they're smart aleck questions. They're sophomoric questions. And they're all kind of like gathered together in a smart aleck, sophomoric kind of a way in order to rattle the faith of people in the verities of the Christian faith. Things that we know are true because they came from the lips of Jesus Himself and they're in the Word of God. Now, this is happening, and it's not happening out there in some liberal church you never heard of. It's happening within the, within the community of evangelical Christianity. It's going to influence people that you know and you love. Now, we got to understand. So on the one hand, there are things that we can know. Where God has revealed Himself and He said things, then we should, we, we should not be intimidated from these propositional truths. Yes, the folks that think that we're all about propositional truths and we really don't care about the affections of the heart, we should listen to that criticism. But still, we shouldn't, re, we shouldn't say we don't know anything and we don't believe anything. So understand what I'm saying here. The Bible makes certain things very clear, and those are things that are true and right, big T truth, and we should believe them, and we should defend them. That's what our church has been about. There are other things that God is not going to reveal. There are things that are mysterious. There are things that are, because God is infinite, and our abilities are finite. And there, are times, there are times that there are things that even the Scriptures talk about that, are, that, that you really can't put together and, and tie up in a neat little package and have a little pat answer about. At those times, what do you do? You want me to give you an example? Yeah? Okay. Since you asked me, and you're like, we're goading me into it, I will. 
some of us, we look at the Bible and we see the sovereignty of God in the Bible and the sovereignty of God in salvation and the whole matter of election. Right? And what we see is we see God working before time began to choose people who would believe in Him. And I believe that's what the Bible teaches very clearly. I don't think there's any question. In my mind, it teaches that very clearly. Some of you might not agree with me. Because your concentration is on, now, well, wait a minute, but aren't we responsible to pray? And aren't we responsible to go? And aren't we responsible to believe? And isn't there this, this piece of human responsibility over here? And the answer is yes. You're like, wait, 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 what is it? Is it this or is it that? And I'm like, that's kind of mysterious, isn't it? Can, can, does that, now, what does that tension do to you? Do you want to kind of oversimplify the Bible so that you can, like, spout little quick answers to everybody and you know the answers that people have, like, you know, arm wrestled about for centuries? Or is it okay if you just say, I know the Bible teaches this, and I know the Bible teaches that, and in my finite mind, I can't put that all together, but it causes me to worship God? Well, I think that's a good idea. Theology leading to doxology. I'm just studying the Word of God. I'm like, this is amazing. Look at what this says here. Look what that says here. I believe these things. I'm not sure I entirely understand them, but I do believe that God is good and it causes me, the mystery of that causes me to worship Him. I wish I could get this across. I've mentioned this before and people tend to get stuck. And that's just a great example because I knew I'd get your attention. But I would say this, that, even that specific example, and there's some other examples that think about this idea. And that is that when you know what you know and study what you can study and be a diligent student of the Word and be as accurate as you can be, and when you're left with a mystery on your hands, then let that drive you to your knees so that you worship God in that. These things ought to make us have, live in awe of God. Let the mysteries drive you to worship. When, in the series of questions that God gives, you see different things about God. I just jotted down four of them. There's like probably a couple hundred major things. There are probably at least 50 major, at least. I'm just like, that's off the top of my head. Major things about who God is that he reveals in the questions that he fires at Job. is revealing himself here. But I noticed, I just popped in my mind, four of them. In these questions that God asks of Job, you see God's transcendence and his imminence. In other words, you see he's beyond, but he's near. You see both of these things about him. You see his mystery, things that you don't understand, but in the same sense, he's revealing himself. You see his revelation. He's withholding certain things from us so that it would inspire awe. He's revealing things about himself in these questions. You see his power, but you also see his tender compassion. You see his absolute sovereignty and his providence and his rule over the earth in these questions that he asks. Now, I asked you this before, and I just want to ask you again. Who here, don't raise your hand, is going through a difficulty right now? A, a difficult question that just keeps you awake at night. Or something that's really painful or hurtful. So maybe you have just an ongoing physical difficulty that just is not going away. Or something that you love that's, that's far from God. Or questions you just, things you don't understand. I know that some of you have had a great loss in the last year or so. A great loss. And, and these things... Can I just suggest you gently, I believe this is what the book of Job is saying. God may or may not reveal to you a lot of answers about that or what he's doing. 
but He wants to reveal Himself to you, and that's enough. So, let me tell you a favorite old story that I've told before. I don't do this very often, but this is what pastors call an old chestnut. And I'm telling you this story because I'd like you to memorize I'd like you to learn it from by heart. Don't memorize it. That's just doing violence to a story. But, but listen to this story. And as this story settles upon your heart, and some of you have heard it before, I like to believe that you may tell this story to your children or your grandchildren or somebody that needs to hear this story someday. So let me conclude this part of the service and whatever business meeting you follow. We can go to the part of the story by telling a story. A little legend, a little boy with his grandfather. And the grandfather says to the little boy, let's take a walk one day. It's just toward nightfall, and he takes his little grandson for a walk. And they walk back on the farm, back toward the woods, and then through the woods and over a hill. And it's a beautiful walk, but it's getting dark. And after a while, the little boy says to his grandpa, Grandpa, let's go home. And grandpa he says to him, no, 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 you're, you're in too big of a hurry. We still have things to see. But the little boy's nervous. No, Grandpa, we need to go home right now. And you know this is going, right? The grandfather says, why do you need to go home right now? He goes, because it's getting dark, Grandpa. He said, we, need, we don't need to be home before dark. Yes, we do. Why? Because, Grandpa, I don't know the way home in the dark. So the grandpa gets down on his knees, holds the little boy's face in his hands, he says, look, you put your hand in my hand. And as long as your hand is in my hand, you don't need to know the way home. Now, I really believe that that is what God is saying to Job. And I believe that God is saying that to you tonight. You may not know the way home. You may not even know what's going on. But you can trust the one who extends his hand, his powerful and his loving hand to you in this suffering that you're going through, in this difficulty that you're going through. You can put your hand in his hand and you can trust him. Because he knows the way home, even when you don't know the way home. Let me pray that God will help you understand that tonight. Lord, I pray that for each of us, that we would see and know and believe that these things are true. Thank you for this beautiful book, this beautiful story and poetry. And and, uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us diligence to study it more carefully and to be accurate and wise with your word as you You were not happy with those who spoke inaccurately about you. And and I pray, Lord, for those who've gathered here tonight, that you'd help them. Before we go home tonight, I'm thinking about uh, Bill and George Calvis' mother, who uh, is at the point of death, and I know that they're praying for her salvation. And, uh, Lord, I pray tonight that we would hear the word that she was beautifully and miraculously converted to you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, for all who, uh, who are outside of Christ, help us this week as we uh, are out among people. Sometimes we're grieved by the way they talk and the way they live. Help us to be a light. Help us to be loving, genuine Christians. Help us to be a witness, prayerful. Give us this grace, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.